The Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners, a free-flowing conversation with leaders in the HR community, talking about themselves, the industry, and their work. Brought to you in cooperation with NERA, the Northeast Human Resources Association. Welcome to the Hennessy Report. I'm Dave Hennessy. I'm very excited to share with you a recent conversation I had with Paul Davies at General Electric. Paul was one of the first GE executives to move to Boston when they relocated their headquarters here two years ago. Also, around the same time, he was tapped by the head of HR for a newly formed role at GE, Leader of Employee Experience. Paul discusses this new HR role and how they benchmarked it with what the Walt Disney Company and others are doing in this area. GE is known for innovation, and you'll hear how they are using technology to help HR and other leaders make the best decisions on talent and succession. Next up on the podcast is Mary Gentili, the director and creator of Giving Voice to Values, also known as GVV. And she's a professor at the University of Virginia's Darden School of Business. And now I bring you my conversation with Paul Davies. Well, Paul Davies, welcome to the Hennessy Report. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. And you say be here. You're not, that doesn't sound like a Boston accent. It Paul. is not. Where are you from? So this is an Australian accent. Uh-huh. I, uh, I grew up in the, the north of Australia, mm-hmm. uh, a little place called Cairns, uh, not to be confused with the French city where the annual movie festival takes place, Cannes, mm-hmm. um, but Cairns is famous for its proximity to the Great Barrier Reef. So oh. I grew up with lots of sun, lots of sandy beaches. Uh, the Great Barrier Reef, so I'm a scuba diver, ah. uh, so it was a great place to grow up. Beautiful scenery, I'm Indeed. sure. Indeed. Yes. Any early life experiences that you can share that helped shape who you are as a professional and maybe directed your career a little bit, a person or an experience that comes to mind? Yeah, so if I think about my early career, very much shaped by growing up in a small regional town. Not a lot going on, one movie theater, so you'd go out, you'd run into your teachers, you'd run into your friends. But nonetheless, a a very safe community. So that was kind of my foundation. Moved away for school to a big city, or at least an Australian-sized big city. And you just had a really great time uh, learning new things, exposure to different cultures. I'd actually studied Japanese at high school. And so I ended up spending a year in Japan in between high school and university just hanging out. Um, I learned the language, learned the culture, had a really great time. And I think for me, Dave, that helped me be a better HR professional today, being able to empathize with people who, who came from a different background, a very vastly different background to my own. So I think that certainly shaped how I think about things. Mm. I like to think of myself as a, a global thinker. We all have different experiences and perspectives we bring to a conversation. And some cultures, as you know, are more likely to bring that out. And some cultures are less likely to bring that out. So you really have to pull them into the conversation. So I do think that was a big influence on my life. And I'd also say, and for the younger listeners listening, they won't know this company, but I used to work at Blockbuster. Um, <laughs> I spent my... That's like before Netflix, you're talking about. Yeah, this is, pre, this is pre-Netflix. This is a, a solid device, a physical thing that you had to put into another physical thing to watch a movie. But I spent, uh, I spent four years working at Blockbuster during my college years. And I got to tell you, I was, 
uh, working for an American company. Viacom owned it at the time. Mm. And I, at a very early age, had the privilege of leading other people, leading teams. And a lot of my friends would say, hey, you got the best job in the world at college, right? And I would always say, actually, this is a tough job, right? Friday, Saturday nights, busy. Uh, you know, you had to oh, it was pay while, you were, while you were in college. Absolutely. Were okay, absolutely. Right, right. So this right. used to be like a Thursday, Friday, Saturday for me. And if I'd done something wrong, I'd have to go in on Sundays as well. So it was it was busy, but uh, Blockbuster helped me pay for my college. So uh, I'm always thankful for that. But I think it was the American multinational that allowed me to become who I am today. Uh -huh. And throughout my career, I've always worked really for American companies. I think it's the, the meritocracy, the ability to be you know, your authentic self, bring that to the workplace, mm. and just get stuff done. Mm. And so I've always worked for American companies. So mm. I, I think about those experiences being influential early on in my life. That's great. How's the move gone for GE? What were some of the reasons for it? And um, almost two years in, what's some of the reactions from you and your staff? Uh, look, we couldn't be... We couldn't be happier being here in Boston. We, to paint the picture for you, Dave, we moved from a suburban campus in Fairfield, Connecticut, which was very nice, mm. but it served its purpose at a particular time in the evolution of GE. And that office was, was big. Uh, everyone had a car park. It took five minutes to get off the property. By the time you left your office, got to the car park, cleared security on your way out. And now we're in the thriving part of Boston called the Seaport. Sure. And five minutes from where we are now, we can hit big companies like Fidelity, uh, Red Hat. We have Thomson Reuters next door. Vertex is across the street. We're in this very different ecosystem, and that means we work differently. Um, what I'd say is that the locals have been fantastic. They've really welcomed us with open arms, so we couldn't be happier with being here and then, of course, the, the schools, the universities, the hospitals, pharma, technology, the startups, the venture capital companies that are all in this ecosystem are terrific for us. And so we are leaning in more than ever to make sure that we make the most of the ecosystem so that it works both ways. Right. That's great. What has been some of the reactions of employees that have made the move? And I imagine because of your location, you're attracting a little bit different type of demographic. Absolutely. And, and that was clearly part of the strategy mm -hmm. to make sure that we were in an ecosystem that pushed out and had great talent. So sure. we love tapping into the, the local market. Uh, the reaction from our employees, I think initially there was certainly a change. A lot of our people used to drive to the office. There was really no other way to come into the office. And now we have people coming in on the commuter rail, whether they're coming into the South Station or North Station, people coming across on the ferry. Right. It's just walking to work. I think you said you live close by. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. We're in we're in Southeast, so we're a stone's throw away from the office. And all of that leads to working with each other differently, whether mm. it's inside the company or outside the company. I think we do a lot more social events now because people aren't getting into their car and driving. Mm. People are walking and on the way home, we're spending time with each other. Mm. And so again, that the culture of the business feels very different. And, and that was also part of the reset when we moved from Fairfield to Boston. Mm. If we were going to change the culture and the way that we worked, we had to lead by example out of headquarters. Mm. And so if you look at our senior most leaders, their offices were huge. Big mahogany doors, large floor space. Kind of classic executive stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And quite frankly, they very rarely ran into each other in the hallway. Mm. Their assistants would set up meetings with each other. So there was no serendipity mm. in those collisions. 
Now, uh, most of our senior leaders actually don't have an office. They're in an open plan environment along mm. with their teams. They're able to hear what's going on in the office. They're able to collaborate real time mm. and people have access to them. And mm. so what we find now is this serendipitous collision of ideas is really coming to the forefront. Mm. And that means we're making decisions quicker. Mm. We're not scheduling a meeting a week out, right? Mm. We're just wandering up to someone's desk and say, hey, Dave, can I have a conversation right now? And that's the reality of the world we live in. Sure. It's about speed. And so we need to, to do the same thing inside the company. Right. You might have heard this from some of the people that you've gotten to know that live in the Boston area. And you mentioned the seaport and the growth there. Even for us Bostonians, it's a little shocking. It's almost, it almost feels like, because I talked to many of my colleagues that have worked here for all of our careers, like they added another little Boston right on the other side of that, this channel here. Mm -hmm. And all these tech companies operate a lot of the same way right. you are with right. open environments, tech, biotech, that's exploded over there. So it sounds like you've really melded into this Boston culture and the changing Boston culture. Right, right. Yeah. And a, a great example of that, Dave, really is we would have loved to have had you at our headquarters location to record this interview. But with all the construction going on, we'd agreed that we should do it here <laughs> because the, the cranes, the work people, uh, just the noise in the general vicinity, which is great. It means building is happening, the economy is good. Um, but it's one of the downsides of being in the seaport right now. Yes, well, we're glad to have you walk over to our Essex Partners office here. Paul, the GE portfolio has changed quite a bit over the years, the businesses that you run. right? How can we think about GE and what the strategy is these days? Yeah, and look, we've been around, I think it's 126 years. So a company that lasts that long has to change and evolve with the times. And so when I joined GE back in the year 2000, the way that we used to describe our businesses, really we had 13. And I really struggled to remember them at the time, right? <laughs> you what, needed a cheat sheet. Indeed. What is it that we do? What do we call our businesses? But the portfolio was very different. We had our appliances business that is certainly very well known to the American consumer. We owned NBC, the TV network that, of course, many people know and love. And we had a plastics business, actually, was headquartered right here out of Pittsfield, Massachusetts. That's right. So I used to spend a little bit of time when I worked in the plastics business coming in and out of Logan uh, during the, the Big Dig. So I, I know the Big Dig very well. Uh, but today, really, we're focused on four key businesses in three key industries. That's our aviation business, our healthcare business. And then within the energy sector, we have kind of the traditional power generation business, uh, as well as our renewable energy business. And so that's really the focus. Just those three business areas, three, really focusing in on those three. Three yeah. core industries. And what really winds its way through each of those franchises is digital capability. So this ability to take uh, data that is spun off our big equipment, um, and turn that into insights for our customers so that they can run their facility, their infrastructure in a much more efficient, productive way. And so that's how we think about the business. It's a lot simpler, mm -hmm. certainly a lot simpler under John Flannery's leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, he moved into the role uh, in the spring of last year. And so we've really narrowed the focus. And what I would say is that we'll continue to evolve uh, over the months and years ahead if we want to maintain continuity. Can you tell us a little about John Flannery's leadership style? Sure. So what I will tell you and what he continues to talk about with employees is the, the notion of candor. Really important that we're honest with one another, good and bad, right? Because that really drives speed. So the more honest we can be, the quicker we can make decisions that are right for us and we can move forward. He's also big on competition. He loves to win. No surprise when you're at that level mm -hmm. that that's uh, one of your traits. 
loves to win, and is really big on team. So making sure that he builds the right team with a diverse range of skills, experiences, and we've seen that in some of the decisions that he's made already. And so that's what I would describe him as his leadership style. And what we start to see that now do is trickle throughout the organization. As he has robust, candid conversations with his team, that team is in turn having it with their teams. And when you're in a large organization, again, those conversations trickle down. Uh, but that's how I would summarize John. Well, this seems like a good time to shift to your role. Sure. Um, you have an interesting title. It's called employee Leader of Employee Experience right. at GE. What is this job all about? Yeah, Dave, Dave you're not the first person to ask. Uh, fascinating title, right? I love it. I'm the first person in the company to have a, a title employee experience. And to give you some context, my former uh, boss, Susan Peters, who was the CHRO before her retirement, uh, called me up one day and said, Paul, I've got this job for you. I'd love you to take it. I said, great. What is it? She said, I want you to lead employee experience. And of course, I said yes, <laughs> not knowing what the heck employee experience was, to be honest. So we, we spent about you know, kind of 90, 100 days just hanging out in industry, in the community, understanding what other companies and what other organizations were doing around employee experience. And so we spent time in Silicon Valley with startups, but also some established technology companies. Mm -hmm. We hung out down in Manhattan with some not-for-profits mm -hmm. from some community organizations, as well as some technology companies. And we hung out in Disney to see how they thought about experience holistically. And I think Dave, what I learned was industry generally thinks about experience in three different ways. They look at it through the lens of the culture. So the culture that you are trying to create, whether it's through values or beliefs for their employees. Uh, we think about technology. So do the tools and technologies that you provide your employees, enable them to be productive, enable them to do what they need to do. Uh, and then, of course, the physical workspace. So does the culture you're trying to drive around experience manifest itself or not in the physical environment that you create for your employees? And so I call it digital, physical, cultural. Just easy for me to remember. Mm -hmm. But those three didn't feel right alone in the context of GE. And so what we tried to do was make employee experience relevant for our context. And so we couldn't do that without thinking about our purpose. So we aspire to be the world's premier digital industrial company. Um, we have some fascinating purpose statements in some of our businesses. The aviation business has a purpose statement that says, we, inv we invent the future of flight, we lift people up, and we bring them home safely. Hmm. Hugely motivational and mm -hmm. something that we talk a lot about internally, but also as we try and attract candidates um, as we compete in the market for great talent. Mm -hmm. So purpose is important. The other thing we think about is our people and their development. So creating an environment where our people can have great developmental experiences is critical. And then last but not least, the role of our people leaders, which is what we call our managers. Our people leaders play a really important role in bringing employee experience to life. Because we can have great technology, a great workplace, great culture, you name it. If we don't have great leaders, our employees are not going to have great employee experience. Right, always the number one satisfaction indicator. 
is your relationship with your manager, your people leader, right. as you call it, right? On right. all surveys, we hear that. Yep, yep, absolutely. So they're really the six things that we think about when we think about employee experience. And of course, it's a broad, nebulous topic, and we've tried to focus it down on a few critical experiences and talk about things like moments that matter. Mm. What are the moments that matter for our employees along their journey while they're with us? Mm. What are the moments that matter for our candidates while they are going through a process trying to understand whether or not GE is the right place for them? As our people go out on parental leave, maternity, paternity leave, what are the moments that matter mm. for them along that journey and how do we help them through that as an employer. That's great. Uh, moments that matter, are there any details you can give us or examples of what's bubbled up out of that work? Yeah, so we hear a lot, particularly from candidates, this is a great ex example, from our candidates, they tell us one of the moments that matters is actually the time between when they ex accept an offer with us and when they join. They often felt that we'd done this high intensity dance and we tried to woo people to the company and then we went radio silent when they signed on the dotted line until kind of just before day one. And so we know that's a moment that matters for our people because they've told us. And so now what we're trying to do is fill in that black hole with connections. Ah. And we've done that through technology. We use technological nudges that mm -hmm. simply remind our people leaders to reach out to those people who haven't yet joined their team mm -hmm but who tell us they really want to be contacted with. And it's amazing what a 30-second conversation can be. Hey, I'm really looking forward to you joining us in a couple of weeks. Uh, any questions? The, the power of that question or the power of that reach out for our employees or our new employees is really powerful. That's really cool. Good yeah. example. Paul, can you share any specific initiatives or benefits that you have in place that are really impacting the employee experience now, in addition to what you've already talked about? So maybe... Let me tackle a couple. Uh, one would be the candidate experience. When we think about employee experience, we are trying to be holistic. So whether it's candidates, our employees, potential employees, alumni, retirees, you name it, it's holistic. And when we walked in the shoes of our candidates, we very quickly realized that our process was cumbersome. It took on average between 20 and 25 minutes for our candidates to apply for a job at GE. And when you then went and walked in the shoes of those candidates and applied at competitor organizations or other companies that we compete for talent with, their process was a lot simpler. Mm -hmm. And so again, when you walk in their shoes- What was the delta? I'm just curious. What did you see? Was it 10 minutes or five minutes to apply at some other competitors? Or did you... Yeah, it was significant. It was so, a big difference. Yeah, yeah, so right now we're at three to five minutes on average. Oh, you brought it down to Absolutely. three to five from 25. From 25. Okay. <laughs> and so, Dave, when you when you understand that we have millions of candidates that apply for a job at GE each and every year, 20 minutes per candidate is a huge time saving for our candidates. But it's also the first time that we make an impression with potential employees right and so we got to make it a good one and especially when they're shopping <laughs> side by side and they get to ours right. little wonder we lost a significant amount of our people during that application process mm. so I use that as an example because it hits on branding it hits on this talent war that we're all facing how do you attract good talent right and this is a critical part of the initial experience that's great the second example I'll give you is 
you know, we recently moved to what we call uh, performance development. I think we might touch on it a little bit later. It's our new approach to, to performance. Oh, I think that's a, dig in, that's a fascinating topic. Our listeners are very interested in. Okay, great. So I'll, I'll give you one example from performance development and how we've tried to return value to our employee experience. So we heard a lot from our employees that they love getting real-time feedback. They loved hearing what they're doing well, and they also loved hearing what they could work on or what they could do better. But the question they had was, so what can I do with that feedback? We call it insights. What can I do with that insight? Mm. So what we did is, again, walking in our employee shoes, understanding what their needs are, what the moments that matter are for them. They told us very candidly, if I'm going to get some feedback, I want to know what I can do with it. So with an algorithm and some very simple natural language processing, what we've now been able to do is every time our people receive a consider insight, which is our developmental Mm -hmm. feedback, we also match that feedback to a learning asset. So it might be a TED Talk, it might be a book, it might be a course. And so now for every bit of developmental feedback someone gets, they get suggestions on how they can be better at that particular Uh, skill or capability. And what our employees told us, unsurprisingly, is, this is really useful. And so now, as a learning organization, we're starting to return value to our employees by making it easier to consume learning. And that's a good thing for all of us. Very cool. And you started to touch on your new performance system. Right. And I think it's PD at GE is what you call it. And you also touched on a couple things that I've heard speakers talk about from GE, that you have insights. And some of them are continue insights. Right. And some of them are consider, and meaning consider something an alternative approach. Right. Maybe you could just touch on how this evolved. Right. Look, Dave, I, I think when we tell the performance development story, you've got to put it in the context of the journey that we've been on. And four or five years ago, we reimagined what we now call our GE beliefs. Um, five kind of aspirational uh, beliefs that we have that define our culture. So that was four to five years ago. We then went through a period of self-reflection where we said we have to be simpler, we have to be faster to compete in the environment we're in. So we brought in Eric Reese of Lean Startup fame to come and help us think about how we could think and act more like a startup company. And so we called that FastWorks. And it was, the principles are really about how do we add value to our customers quicker. So that's things like uh, minimal viable products. Iterating. Don't fully engineer a product, right? Don't spend the time and resources on a fully engineered product. Learn with your customer, Mm. create prototypes, change the prototypes, and build something together. Mm. And so the combination of the introduction of the GE beliefs and then this FastWorks approach, which said, let's be more experimental, let's be more startup-like, led us to the culture that enabled us to move to performance development. We had been using uh, what we used to call EMS for about 40 years. And for all intents and purposes, it was feedback from the top down. It was one way, unidirectional. Mm -hmm. And what PD is, performance development is, is really multidimensional. Any two people in the company can share insights with each other. HR does not have access to those insights. We can't see it in the function. Mm -hmm. Uh, Somebody's people leader doesn't see the feedback or the insights that they've received because we started from the principle of let's trust our employees. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, if you think about how conversations happen in the organization, they don't happen up and down a hierarchy. They happen at the water cooler. They Mm -hmm. happen around a boardroom table or in a collaboration space. 
And so we wanted to make our performance development approach just as organic as conversations happen in the organization. What we've learned is people appreciate that things change. So when I look back on some of the things I used to do, sit down with the team in January, set priorities for the year, by the time we got to May, June, July, chances are the circumstances, the environment you're in has changed. But we didn't have a formal mechanism to go back and change trajectory. Mm. And so performance development is all about, hey, you may start a priority on January 1st, which may change by the end of the month because... The market's changed. Your customers changed. Something's different. So let's reset. Right. Instead of having people trying to reach goals that aren't as important as they were a year ago. Right. Right. Exactly right. Because they want to get that performance appraisal rating. Right. You don't have that issue anymore. Right. Absolutely. So we still do performance reviews. Right. We just don't have performance ratings. So we think it's important that we at least formally sit down and close out the performance year between a, a people leader and their individual team members. But the move away from performance ratings has also been interesting. Mm. Uh, interesting for us as an HR function, but interesting for us as a company that was so well known for kind of the rack and stack, 2070 I, I think GE brought that to the whole world, and right. maybe now you're bringing something different to the right. whole world. <laughs> right. So, so that was our challenge, right? Something that we were so well known for and moving away from it. 180 degrees mm. has been a fascinating cultural journey. And wh what I would tell you, Dave, and the listeners is we know through all of the piloting that we did, and I was part of an early pilot. Uh, we had 6,000 people in 2014 start this performance development journey. Mm. And I happened to be in a group that didn't have rating. So I haven't had a formal rating now for the last three cycles. But what I'll tell you and what we learned is we've been able to differentiate as much with ratings as we do without ratings. So minus the label, we still know who our best performers are mm -hmm. and our people leaders can differentiate things like the merit increase, things like the bonus. Yeah, I was curious about yeah. that. I think a lot of people that are hesitant to go this way without the ratings right. are concerned about that very issue. Right. So how, how does it work? How can you actually get through that? So without it, having it, ratings, without having numbers on, on people. Right. And in our experience, you can do it. And what I always say is, if you're picking a team or you have a team, you know who your most valuable player is, all the way down to your last individual. And so we can differentiate. And as long as we are setting priorities right and giving real-time insights, our people leaders have been able to do it. Right. Now, I would tell you we don't have shadow ratings because we know some companies have moved away from ratings, but like, behind the scenes... There's a number somewhere. There's a number there's a somewhere yeah, that yeah. enables them to, to And you pick don't a have bonus. that. We it's... don't have that at all. So how do you... Like, say I'm in a business unit and I, I want to get access to talent in another group. Mm -hmm. The old way, I could maybe look and see who the highest rated X engineers are. Right. Now I don't have that window. Right. So how do, you get, how do you get that cross-divisional or cross-team look because now really only people that work with them will have that sense of who's the best on my team right interestingly i think this is where the value now comes from hr if i if i'm honest about the way i used to practice hr in a rankings world when we did things like send people off to a leadership course or invite people to a, a round table with the ceo i used to run a report and say tell me the person's level and tell me the person's rating and that's all I had to do. I ran a report. I didn't have to think. Now, when we have a unique opportunity to send someone to a leadership course 
or to send someone to a CEO roundtable or have them attend some kind of forum, we actually have to think about who the best person and the best people are to go to those events. So I actually think it stopped me and our function from being lazy. We actually have to think who are the best people suited for those opportunities. And collaborate and have discussions with the business leaders. Very interesting stuff. Congratulations with that. I think that's going to be fun to watch. Indeed. Out of it in the future. Paul, how do you see how emerging technologies are impacting the way HR is delivered inside GE? So I think, Dave, the technology is probably the biggest disruptor that will hit the function in the, the short to medium term. The way that I've practiced HR, the way that I've seen others practice HR really over the last 20 years hasn't really changed. It's been about attracting, retaining, developing talent. I I think some of the insights and new technologies that we have access to, whether it's machine learning, natural language processing, artificial intelligence, um, AR, VR, will fundamentally change the role of HR and how we deliver our services. And I've got a couple of examples of things that we're starting to, to play around with really at GE in terms of leveraging technology to make better people decisions. Uh, one is, uh, it's a little bit like Tinder to be honest, but one is around matching people, mentors and mentees. In the past, we were limited by HR's ability to connect two people. Hey, Dave, you'd be a great mentor for Paul. I'm going to introduce the two of you. Now what we do is have the machine do that for us. So for all of our employees, there is a prioritized list of people that could be their mentor or you could be a mentor for. What that is simply doing is taking what we know about our people and we have 10 terabytes of data on our people. So we know a lot and simply says, hey Dave, you are probably best matched with this person and your second best match is this individual. And so now we've taken that role away from HR, not to say that we can't still insert ourselves in the process, but now we're enabling people to access other individuals in the system, in our company, without the need for HR's involvement. Uh, The same is true, by the way, I use the example of uh, nudging our people leaders when they have a new employee come on board. Um, Our people leaders are busy. Uh, They may forget to make a very simple phone call. So through technology, we have an app that pushes those nudges to our people leaders that says, hey Dave, don't forget Paul's starting in a couple of weeks might be worth you giving him a phone call to make sure that his anxiety levels are reduced ahead of day one and you welcome him to the company. Mm -hmm. And so there's many ways that technology is helping us solve some traditional HR problems. We have a a succession planning tool that again, uh, what I love about the machine is it knows so much more than the human. Again, not to say that we'll be replaced, but our value and the conversations that we can have are only enhanced. So for every single one of our executives, the machine has a suggestion of successes in a prioritized order. And what the machine doesn't do, Dave, the machine doesn't see gender, it doesn't see color, it doesn't see introversion or extroversion, Hmm. so it's very objective. And so I think about the squeaky wheel syndrome, right? The people who complain most or threaten to leave if they don't get a job. Right. Or very have great political skills, right? Absolutely. They used to get a lot of the attention. Or the person who happened to sit in a headquarters location may be more visible, right? Right. Um, so we're starting to address some of those traditional challenges that we have through the machine. And what we're learning is the machine's actually a pretty good predictor of things like succession, 
of things like attrition. And so we've just got to learn and lean into that more. Wow, it takes bias out of the process. Right? That's amazing. Paul, I told you that um, we at Keystone produce this podcast in cooperation with the Northeast Human Resources Association. It happens to be the largest HR association in the Northeast. What we like to ask in this question is what advice would you give to somebody early in their HR career that might be interested in having and being at your level someday to reach your kind of level at GE or another organization? What advice would you give? Sure. I always think, Dave, about the trait of curiosity, asking questions. Uh, I think it's incredibly important wherever someone is in the HR function, whether it's a client-facing role or a specialist role, to always understand the business and the business model that they are a part of. And what I've heard many years is people ask questions that to me demonstrate they don't know the business and they don't know the business model. And so asking those questions, how do you make money? Who is the customer? Why do they pay for this? Who are the competitors in this market? Those questions are really important to be able to understand your own business so that, quite frankly, you can make better HR decisions for the people or the customers that you support. So curiosity to me has always been a big one. And I think the more that you practice being curious, the easier it becomes. And quite frankly, whenever you ask someone what may feel like a dumb question, oftentimes people are more than willing to sit down and spend time with you to answer those questions. So curiosity is to me is important. And then the other thing I would add is, breadth of experience. I think we are all more valuable, certainly in the HR profession, when you've seen and done different things. So whether you play in a client role and then you move to a specialist role and back to a client role, or you cover different geographies or different business lines, all of those things add to the set of tools that you bring to your next role or the next company that you go to. It makes you more valuable and a better HR professional. That's great. This question is similar, but it's more personal. If you could write a letter of professional advice, career advice to your 25-year-old self, Paul, what would be in that letter? I definitely would tell myself to do things that I love. I think it's really important that you love what you do. I'd certainly remind myself the importance of seeking trusted advisors, having one or two mentors who have been through and seen different experiences, I think at 30, who are my champions? Who are my really coaches at work? And I didn't have any. And so I think that would be really important to start to explore that area early in one's career to make sure that you had a sounding board, somebody to run ideas past and just seek judgment. Paul, to wrap up, let's go with some lighter questions. Sure. If you could go to dinner with any living person, who would it be and why? So the Dalai Lama is the person who springs to mind. Uh, My father was a Buddhist, so I grew up in a household with many Buddhist influences. My father burnt incense, he meditated. Uh, He tried for many years to have me sit and meditate with him. But the Dalai Lama's ability to to remain calm, cool and collected is I think unparalleled. And so I'd love to know the secret that the Dalai Lama has about maintaining Zen. Excellent. A book that changed your life? So maybe a couple. So a book of fiction is a book called The Power of One about a boy growing up in Africa. And it tells of his tales of resilience, courage. And I read it 
maybe early teens, and it just resonated with me, and I have always kept that one with me. And you said there was another one. This is a really simple read, but I suspect many of your listeners will know this one. Uh, Who moved my cheese? Mm -hmm. My favorite line from the book, what would you do if you weren't afraid? And so whenever I'm challenged with a dilemma or a tough decision, I always play back in my head, what would I do if I wasn't afraid? And you know what? When you ask yourself that question, the answer is really easy. So who moved my cheese? That's great and a great question and a great way to end the podcast. And I want to thank you so much, Paul. Great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Hennessy Report from Keystone Partners. Be sure to subscribe to listen to all of our conversations with leaders in HR. Go to keystonepartners.com and click on the podcast button.